What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A former president of Mauritania landed in jail yesterday. The West African country's current leadership is trying to address its deep inequalities while navigating persistent tribal and racial divides. There's much yet to do, but also reason for hope. And it's been a century since the Austrian philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein published his only book, The Logical Philosophical Treatise. We look at the broad influence it gained by asking a seemingly simple question. What exactly is language? But first... Last autumn, America's Supreme Court seemed destined for momentous change. President Trump has announced federal appeals court judge Amy Coney Barrett as his nominee to fill the Supreme Court seat left vacant by the death of the liberal icon Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Barrett's addition to the court solidifies President Trump's judicial legacy and cements a conservative majority that could impact... But as the court's term comes to a close this month, a flurry of decisions suggests the ideological shift has been far short of tectonic. Yesterday, it issued four rulings, including one against a Pennsylvania school district that the court said violated a student's right to free speech. You'll remember this case. It was about this cheerleader from Pennsylvania who issued a profanity-laden Snapchat message. She was subsequently kicked off the cheerleading team for one year. The justices have also ruled on cases involving the Affordable Care Act, religious freedoms, and compensation for college athletes. Ruling unanimously that the NCAA can't stop universities from giving athletes education-related benefits. The court also rejected the latest challenge to Obamacare. No single ruling signals a seismic change in the court's thinking. Taken together, though, they indicate a tentative transformation of American jurisprudence. Over the course of his four years in office, Donald Trump managed to appoint three justices. That's one-third of the court. The court seemed destined for a quick and dramatic shift to the political right. Stephen Macy is The Economist's Supreme Court correspondent. But so far this term, and we are nearly at the end of the term, the rulings have been more complex and overall less extreme than many might have expected. Let's talk first about Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who really cemented this conservative majority when then-President Trump appointed her last year. What's your read on her decisions so far? The expectation was that Justice Barrett and her much more conservative judicial ideology would change not just the complexion of the court, but its decisions. And there have been some tangible signs of the Barrett court in the outcomes of cases. But in her first eight months, these have not been dramatic or plentiful. By my count, her votes have changed the result from how Justice Ginsburg would have ruled only three times. Twice when she took the side of churches 
objecting to COVID-related public health limits, and once last week in an important separation of powers case concerning the status of administrative patent judges. But even in those few cases where she did rule along ideological lines, she did not extend conservative principles as far as she might have. What do you mean by that? A good example of this is a case called Fulton versus Philadelphia that was resolved last week. She sided with a Catholic social services agency that had refused to approve same-sex couples as foster parents. This was a unanimous ruling, which surprised a lot of people. But the ruling, which was written by Chief Justice John Roberts, came in on very narrow grounds. It said that Philadelphia had violated the agency's religious liberty, but did not go so far as to argue that any restrictions on these sorts of religious exercise potentially violate the Constitution. Three justices did go that far. Justices Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, and Sam Alito supported this much more emphatic view that gave very little credence to the interests of gay and lesbian parents. The three liberal justices and three conservative justices, Roberts, Barrett, and Kavanaugh, would not go down that road. Is that to say that that she and those other conservative justices just aren't as conservative as we might have thought? Well, not necessarily. These judges will probably be on the court for decades until the middle of the century. What we see this term is really a mixed bag. On voting access during the election, the court was more aligned with Republicans. It blocked curbside voting in Alabama. It narrowed the window for absentee voting in Wisconsin. It reimposed witness requirements for mail-in ballots in South Carolina. But on other controversial matters, the court has found ways to sidestep. On the Obamacare ACA ruling, for example, they merely ruled that Texas didn't have standing to bring the case. They did not engage with the substance of the constitutional challenge. And the same was true when Donald Trump and his allies tried to challenge last year's election results. Those challenges were shot down without dissent by the justices, largely on technical procedural grounds. So far, then, this is a court that's tended to decide not to decide, just to not get involved. Well, in some matters, that is right. The court has been under unusual and building scrutiny over the past few years. And it really looked like a kind of political football last autumn when Republicans rushed to confirm a replacement for Justice Ginsburg while they still clung to power in the White House and the Senate. The more scrutiny, the more people talk about court packing or other reforms, the more likely it may be that the court or a majority of it will want to broadcast a message of impartiality, agreeableness, unanimity, objectivity. And let's not forget that both Kavanaugh and Barrett went through wrenching confirmation battles and squeaked through by the slimmest of margins. It's not particularly surprising that they would keep their heads a little low and not immediately stick their necks out to usher in radical changes in the law. So that might be why these judges have been so agreeable. On half the cases this group has heard, their decisions have been unanimous and very few decided by narrow margins. And these aren't the last rulings we're going to see from the court this year, right? Yes, the justices typically go on summer break just as July begins. And as of today, they have eight of the 58 cases left to decide, and opinions are coming tomorrow, on Friday, and probably next Monday. The biggest, by far, of those eight cases is one called Brnovich versus Democratic National Committee. 
Nominally, Brnovich is about whether two Arizona voting rules violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But it's really about what Section 2 means when it bans voting practices that are racially discriminatory. Uh, This is a live and highly salient question, given the dozens of suppressive voting rules that Republican states have passed in the wake of the 2020 election. And how the court rules will determine how easy or difficult or hopeless it will be for plaintiffs to challenge those new laws as a violation of the Voting Rights Act. So would you expect this unanimity to to continue beyond this term? This has been a rough and contentious Supreme Court term, but the heat is about to be dialed up even more. In the autumn, the justices are hearing cases involving abortion rights, even teeing up a possible reversal of Roe versus Wade. And they are asking whether the right to keep and bear arms in the Second Amendment is ripe for expansion beyond what the court first recognized in 2008. So a year from now, we will know a lot more, I think, about this conservative supermajority and how quickly and how far they intend to reshape American law. Thanks very much for joining us, Stephen. Thank you, Jason. It's always good to be with you. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist. The former president of Mauritania, Mohamed Ould Abdelaziz, was jailed yesterday. He had been indicted in March, accused of graft when he led the country between 2008 and 2019, allegations that he denies. While under house arrest, he failed to report to police, sparking his imprisonment. Mauritania is a large but sparsely populated West African country whose society is deeply divided. Partly, that's down to a long history of corruption, but it also suffers from a legacy that stretches deep into its history. So Mauritania has actually a long history of slavery. Uh, slavery was only abolished in 1981, and only uh, that was only backed with criminal laws in 2007. Kinley Salmon is an Africa correspondent for The Economist. Mauritania is made up of Moorish, uh, lighter-skinned people, and also black people of African origin. Uh, But black Mauritanians, even those who were free of slavery, have also been persecuted, deported back in 1989 in particular. And all this history has created really quite deep inequalities and divisions that still uh, are very evident today. The country's also been beset, unfortunately, by a number of coups and corruption. So it's in a challenging place. And currently, for example, stands 157th on the United Nations Human Development Index. It's certainly a country that has had a troubled past. And what about its future? Is any of that changing? Uh, Well, there are signs of change. There was a presidential election in 2019, which led to the country's first ever peaceful transfer of power. And the new president, uh, Mohamed Ulgaswani, many people thought he would follow the status quo, but actually he's acted against the former president, allowing parliament to investigate corruption And that's led to various arrests of officials, including of the former president himself. 
And Mr. Gaswani, the new president, has also taken a conciliatory approach with opposition groups, reaching out, uh, having meetings and tackling issues that have been taboo uh, for a long time in Mauritania. One of those issues, of course, is still slavery. Uh, and his government has edged towards doing a bit more about slavery. Um, progress remains slow, but it's no longer as unacceptable for government to talk about it. There was, for example, uh, an American abolitionist group that as recently as 2017 was simply denied entry to the country at the airport. That group uh, visited just last month without uh, any trouble. But it's important to note that anti-slavery organizations do still warn uh, there's a long way to go. The prosecutions of slaveholders remain rare, and uh, rights groups estimate there's probably still tens of thousands of people uh, enslaved in Mauritania. Enslaved in what way? What does that slavery look like? So anti-slavery organizations point out that a lot of people who remain in slavery in Mauritania are working as often as domestic workers of some sort, or effectively as domestic workers, but of course without pay and without freedom. Uh, but that means that they can be somewhat hiding in plain sight. And so it's those enslaved people who are really the focus of anti-slavery organizations uh, in Mauritania today. And are there any signs that the country is, is trying to address those problems? Uh, well, the government is uh, really starting to try to do more to help people who remain in, in poverty in Mauritania, both former slaves and, and others. Uh, and so they've begun a number of, of anti-poverty schemes, many of which are foreign-funded. Some of those are, are about dealing directly with the consequences of the pandemic, but others also last beyond it. Uh, so, for example, about 100,000 of the poorest households are uh, set to receive quarterly grants of, of about $37. That should be the full 100,000 receiving those by the end of this year. And the government's also announced plans to double the amount of that assistance uh, quite soon. So they are beginning to try to address that legacy of, of poverty and inequality. And, and how much good will that do? Will, will that be enough? Well, you know, living conditions uh, in Mauritania for many people are, are still very tough. Many people live in, in, in very small lodgings. There's difficulty often getting enough food, particularly outside of the capital and in the lean season. So while that aid will definitely help and can be used you know, for things like getting food, covering basic needs, there is clearly a need for, for more economic development and perhaps for more help too. But I think what's notable is that there's begun to be some, some help for more people from the government, and that's a significant change. Well, and, and what economic conditions is, is all this happening in? What's Mauritania's economy like? Well, Mauritania is still a very poor country, but there are some, some promising signs of change on the economic side as well. Uh, for example, the government uh, recently launched a new investment promotion agency, uh, and that's trying to stimulate investments outside and beyond the mining sector, uh, which has been the typical driver to try and diversify the economy further. Uh, but gas is also a major opportunity for Mauritania. It has uh, some of the largest reserves of gas on the continent, at least measured on a per-person basis. Uh, and a very large new project is set to start production in 2023. And there's great hopes that that will benefit the country, although, of course, um, that will depend on, on avoiding some of the pitfalls like reckless spending and corruption uh, that have been an issue in the past. And there's also hope that that, that revenue from gas and the exports it will generate uh, will drive the economy more broadly and possibly also um, pro help provide cheaper electricity, uh, which remains uh, not that widely available in Mauritania. So it sounds as if broadly then things are, are kind of on the up in general in Mauritania. Well, you know, there are these signs of change that are, that are positive that we've talked about, but there are some really big challenges still. Women's rights, for example, continue to be very limited in Mauritania. The laws there, for example, define rape only loosely, and survivors are sometimes penalized for reporting rape because there are also laws against sexual relations outside of marriage. 
And, you know, there are a number of very impressive feminist campaigners that have been pushing for a law on violence against women to go through parliament. But that's been stalled for a long time and the government is still sitting on it uh, at this stage. So uh, there are still, you know, real frustrations and real challenges uh, right across the country. So if the country can deal with these social issues, the the legacy of slavery and so on, you think the overall uh, prediction should be good for the country? Well, the, the new president's approach, you know, more conciliatory, tackling some of these difficult issues, it's really raised some hopes of positive change. But fulfilling those is, is not going to be easy. Of course, the pandemic has also hit the economy in Mauritania too. And so while, you know, gas revenues may help, uh, there remain immediate challenges. And so people aren't necessarily seeing that economic difference right away. And then, you know, the government also is trying to balance demands from a a real range of different stakeholders, whether that be the army, more Islamist groups, traditional opposition groups. And so I think there's a a window of opportunity, but without more action soon, some of that goodwill that the government has generated uh, may run out. Kenley, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. The world is alles, was der Fall ist. The world is everything that is the case. The world is the totality of facts, not of things. It's hard to find another work of philosophy that's so revered and yet so baffling and impenetrable as the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus by Ludwig Wittgenstein. Ethan Croft writes about culture for The Economist. Whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. It was the only book he ever completed in his lifetime, and it was published a century ago. But a hundred years on, this magnum opus still inspires and confuses all who read it. And how is it that Wittgenstein came to write this one and only book? Wittgenstein was the son of a wealthy Austro-Hungarian industrialist, and he decided that he didn't really want that life, so he moved to Manchester in northern England, became an engineering student, dedicated lots of his time to aviation, and then became interested in works of logic by Gottlob Frege and Bertrand Russell. It was from this that he developed a keen interest in philosophy, went to Cambridge University, was the most dazzling student in his class, and yet never really wrote a word of philosophy. His tutors and his fellow students all wanted him to. They thought he was brilliant and that if he didn't, all of his ideas would be lost to memory. And then, age 25, the First World War breaks out and he's sent to the Eastern Front in the service of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And at that point, he confides to a friend, if I don't live to see the end of this war, I must be prepared for all of my work to go to nothing. And he resolves to write this Tractatus. By the time the war ended and the Versailles Peace Conference was unfolding in Paris, Wittgenstein was released from a prisoner of war camp in Italy. And the book had found rough shape as a few mud splattered pages in his knapsack. And then he found a publisher a few years later in 1921. And what is in it? What is the central theme here? Wittgenstein set out to ask what seems like a fairly simple, though grand question, which is, what is language? Why do the noises, the squawks we make and the scribbles that we draw manage to essentially conjure up anything in the world for those we communicate with? And he answered with this neat picture theory of language. Essentially, he argued that all of the meaningful thoughts that people have are arrangements of pictures, which, when they're expressed in language, 
can be communicated to others. That's what the cat set on the mat has in common with the most sophisticated sentences. The idea came to him in remarkable circumstances. He was reading a report of a court case involving a car crash, which was a pretty novel occurrence at the time. And the lawyer, in order to demonstrate what had happened, used toy cars and dolls to explain the crash. And it was in that moment that he realised the pictorial basis of language. And so why is that picture theory then? Why was that picture theory so, so transformational? It wasn't just the theory itself, it was the way in which Wittgenstein decided to apply it, which was to all of the big central problems of philosophy which had perplexed his forebearers for centuries. Debates around God, debates around morality, what is beauty. Wittgenstein decided that these things were meaningless because they had no relation with the observable world and they couldn't be properly expressed in language. And how was that big idea received at the time? Well, Wittgenstein's heroes weren't particularly taken with it. Gottlob Frege, who had influenced him so much, read the book and said it was an artistic rather than a scientific achievement. Its literary flair was more appealing for some than the philosophical ideas within it. And it's unsurprising that this book did come out at the same time as those great modernist works by Virginia Woolf, James Joyce, T.S. Eliot. It was seen more by some as on the cusp of literary modernism than as part of a new philosophy. Wittgenstein was satisfied with the book. He said it had the final solutions to the problems of philosophy. So he retired to rural Austria. While he was away, the import of the Tractatus sank in, not least in Cambridge University, where he'd studied before the First World War. By the time Wittgenstein returned to Cambridge in 1929, he was pretty much the most vaunted philosopher in the world. So what became then of that godlike status and that transformational philosophy he'd put into the book? It was actually Wittgenstein himself who undermined his own legacy. In the Philosophical Investigations, a collection of his notes which were published by a literary administrator after his death, he does go on to repudiate many of the ideas from the Tractatus. But the Tractatus obviously had massive influence for fields like linguistics, and also in less obvious areas like the arts. The author Iris Murdoch based part of her first book on a line from the Tractatus. Derek Jarman directed a biopic of Wittgenstein. Philosophy is just a byproduct of misunderstanding language. Why don't you realize that? Modern readers spot new resonances as well. A user on Twitter recently joked that Wittgenstein literally wrote his books in tweet form. But in philosophy itself, probably the most important field for Wittgenstein, his legacy is extremely complex. In the middle of the 20th century, Wittgenstein's work, including the Tractatus, was a lodestar for philosophy professors in English-speaking universities. Nowadays, not so much. It's more the preoccupation of a small band of devoted Wittgensteinians who still carry the torch and are conducting many centenary celebrations this year. Not that Wittgenstein himself would have minded, of course, because he had complete contempt for academic philosophy and thought it was an extremely dishonest profession. Thanks very much for joining us, Ethan. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you'd like us, leave us a rating and a review. And see you back here tomorrow. next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S., 
If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.